Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. The justices wrapped up a consequential sitting this week with arguments over the future of the internet and the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program. They also dropped two opinions in argued cases, bringing the total number of cases decided to seven, with 52 left to decide before the end of the term. They kicked off the week by granting a potentially existential challenge to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was established in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis to regulate things like mortgages, credit cards, and car loans. In a case that started out as an industry challenge to a rule about payday lenders, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit last year ruled that the funding mechanism used to pay for the agency was unconstitutional. The Biden administration says that if the ruling stands, it will call into question, quote, virtually every action the CFPB has taken in the 12 years since it was created and could, quote, inflict immense legal and practical harms on the CFPB, consumers, and the nation's financial sector. The case gives the justices the opportunity to further strengthen its separation of powers doctrine, which the justices have used in recent terms to rein in administrative agencies and give more power to the reigning presidential administration. Joining us to break down the case and its implications is Adam White. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Adam, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Kimberly. So this is the latest in a string of recent uh, separation of powers cases in which the court has laid out some limits on how regulatory agencies can be set up. Can you just give us a bit of of a lay of the land uh, about how the court has gone about that? Well, this has been one of the major themes of the of the Roberts Court, the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Roberts. For a decade or more now, the court has returned time and time again to questions about the structure of agencies, uh, the relationship to the, the president and, and also to Congress. Uh, the CFPB was in the Supreme Court just a few years ago in a case called Sela Law, which had to do with the CFPB's original independence from the president. Uh, the court declared that the CFPB's independence from the president was unconstitutional for reasons we, we could get into if you'd like. Uh, but that was in the middle of a run of cases that began actually with a Sarbanes-Oxley-related uh, agency, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which was part of the SEC. The court started in that case about a decade ago to draw lines around how much independence an agency could have. The CFPB case followed, and most recently, a constitutional challenge to the structure of the Fair Housing Finance Agency. Those cases are all sort of part and parcel of the Roberts Court's overarching approach to administrative law. It infuses everything from how the court interprets the agency's statutes to how it interprets the processes that the agencies need to go through, uh, and also the amount of deference that the courts will give to agencies in all of this. What makes this new case about the CFPB a little bit different is that it has to do with the CFPB's relationship first and foremost to Congress in terms of the way that Congress appropriates money or or structures agencies to, to fund themselves in whole or in part. So I see this as the latest step in a long run of cases, but it is a bit slightly different from from some of the previous cases. So I do want to get into um, sort of that funding structure and what it is that the Fifth Circuit held. But I wondered, you know, you talked about these long string of cases. Is it your impression that that's sort of accelerated since we saw the um, Trump appointees join the court? I'm thinking most notably Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. What's the old line about bankruptcy? You know, it happened slowly at first and then all at once. Uh, There's something similar happening here. Quite frankly, a lot of the themes that are emerging in the Roberts Court, themes about statutory interpretation and agency independence, 
they've been percolating in both the lower courts and in the Supreme Court and even preceding uh, President Trump's appointment of three justices. Uh, before I was at AEI, uh, I was also, and, and I also co-direct a program at George Mason's Law School on administrative law. Uh, I was in private practice and we were raising the, the, the so-called major questions doctrine in briefs now nearly 10 years ago. Uh, we were raising a lot of these issues. In a, one of my law firms, we filed some of the original cases against uh, the CFPB a decade ago. And we raised these questions about the power of the purse. Um, in, in those original cases. There's been the roots of these going back a long time, but I think they've kind of all bloomed into public view at this moment, in part because uh, there's so much happening in the agencies. There's just more litigation around them and thus more opportunities for the justices to think and write about them. So tell us about this Fifth Circuit decision. What was it about the way the CFPB is funded that they said violates the Constitution? When, when the CFPB was created in the Dodd-Frank Act about a decade ago, uh, it created, as I said, the, the, this agency, the CFPB, with with emphatic uh, or particular independence from the president, but also, as I saw it, a pretty novel funding structure. Lots of agencies get some of their funding from things like licensing fees. You think of the, the FCC, for example. Uh, the FDIC obviously gets a lot of funding through the, the insurance program. The Federal Reserve gets funding through uh, its, its open market operations. But in Dodd-Frank, the Congress authorized the CFPB to fully fund itself by drawing up to 12% of the Federal Reserve's operating expenses. The CFPB was nominally attached to the Federal Reserve, but it was sort of an independent agency or an executive agency within the Federal Reserve. It was very complicated, but the CFPB's funding was pretty straightforward. Up to four times a year, it goes to the Fed and says, here's how much money we need to operate. Please give it to us. And the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve writes a one-page letter back saying, thanks for your letter. Uh, we'll deposit the funds. The Fifth Circuit found this deeply troubling. Uh, they declared that uh, this was a violation of the Constitution's requirement in Article One of the Constitution that no money be spent out of the Treasury without an appropriation by law. We're going to see in this case that the court's about to hear, uh, we'll see a lot of discussion about what that means. What is an appropriation versus an, an ordinary statute? But the Fifth Circuit concluded that Dodd-Frank was not itself an appropriation statute and that the CFPB's continued ability to perpetually fund itself in total out of the Federal Reserve was a violation of that constitutional requirement that the agency only spend money that was appropriated by law. Can you give me kind of an understanding of what the deeper concern is here? Is it that Congress can't really use its power of the purse? Um, to effectively regulate or sort of watchdog the CFPB because it would have to sort of go through it via the Fed and and you know maybe maybe Congress would want to do that. There's a couple of concerns I think and they're interrelated. One goes to Congress's power to oversee agencies. Uh, in the Federal Papers, James Madison wrote that that the power of the purse was the uh, the most effectual check that the people's representatives can have against the uh, overgrown prerogatives of the other parts of government. And so the power of the purse is, uh, is part and parcel of Congress's power to oversee administration generally. 
Congress writes laws that empower the agencies, but then it also uh, normally funds the agencies. And as scholars have known for a long time, and as Congresses and agencies have known for a long time, Congress's most effective tool in its arsenal of oversight is ultimately its power to spend or not spend. So there's a big question about Congress giving away its uh, its oversight power, losing its oversight power. Then related to that, I'd say there are concerns about Congress giving away its power in general. For the last few years, the court has considered what's called the non-delegation doctrine, right? The worry that sometimes Congress writes laws so broadly that in effect it delegates out its legislative power altogether to the agencies. And, and here you have something very similar. Uh, it's not that Congress gave the CFPB a, a, a two or a five or a 10 or even a 50 year appropriation. Uh, it's that they gave it a perpetual source of funding outside of the appropriations process. And if I could add for the, this is something I've, I've written about in a few places, uh, for its entire life, the CFPB has really trumpeted that independence. It says in its financial reports uh, that it's 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 in, it's a non-appropriated agency, which makes it independent from politics. That was one of the things that I think Senator Warren, when she was a professor advocating for the creation of this agency, really saw it as a feature. But in the current constitutional environment, it looks more like a bug to the agency's critics. And so now the agency, the CFPB, finds itself having to argue that actually the Dodd-Frank itself was the appropriation law. And, and that's what the court's going to focus on in this case. One thing that uh, you hear a lot from critics of the Fifth Circuit decision is that they say the CFPB is not unique. There are a lot of other agencies that that aren't subject to the annual appropriations process, the FDIC, the National Credit Union Administration, and even the Fed itself. Right. Is there a coherent way of drawing a line that says, here's why the CFPB is a problem, but the way the Fed is set up is okay? It's one of the, one of the things that'll make this case so interesting and so challenging, right? That that there are things that look somewhat like this out there with with long pedigrees. I mean, that's sort of the nature of constitutional argument in general. There's always a, some precedents, and the question is, how close are the precedents to the facts at hand? Um, as I've tried to think through these things, first as an advocate and now a bit more detached, thinking about this from from the perch at AEI. Of course, there are similarities. The CFPB is a financial regulator, a lot like these other agencies. Um, the Fed, as I said before, gets, I think, all of its, almost all of its money, uh, if not all of it, from its open market operations. It has to deposit its surplus at the end in the Treasury, but it starts by raising its own funds. The FDIC, similarly, that's largely funded through the, the famous FDI insurance program that all of us with bank accounts benefit from. I think. My, instinctually, I see the CFPB as different in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, all the examples that I just described, you have, the, you have agencies raising funds through their own operations, often directly related to public benefits like the FDIC um, or FCC licensing activities. But the agency is raising its own funds and they're, they're completely tied up with its own sort of program and operations. Here the CFPB is really treating the Federal Reserve's operating budget like a, a totally separate piggy bank. The CFPB is not part of the, the fund's open market operations. It, it's a separate program that's sort of connected to the, the Fed, but, but different. So it really is just substituting the Fed's resources for Congress's power of, of the purse. Second, the CFPB's power, its enforcement power, is I see it different from the other agencies. 
the Fed, the FDIC, and others, they have power that is really bound up in their non-regulatory programs, right? The, 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 the Fed's uh, oversight of banks for the, for the money system, the FDIC's insurance programs, and so on. The, the, the CFP, by contrast, has an entirely separate regulatory agenda. It, it goes out and regulates anybody who engages in activities that fit the sort of broad mandate of, of consumer financial protection. It's not a small subset of, say, banks that opt into the FDIC program. The CFPB has pretty open-ended regulatory powers, uh, and it's using that separate purse, the Fed purse, to fund them. Hmm. Um, so sort of getting back to this particular case, uh, the Biden administration here has a sort of fallback position, which says that even if part of the funding mechanism is unlawful, that isn't a reason to strike down the whole rule that's being challenged here. That is a payday lending rule. Does that argument offer a way to sidestep the bigger issue? That's a great question. Big constitutional issues like this, um, they often arise in a complicated regulatory program. And so a case arrives at the courts with both the regulatory questions and the underlying constitutional questions. And sometimes the regulatory issue can provide an off-ramp in the lower courts. We actually saw that when the CFPB's uh, executive independence was at issue in a case called PHH versus the CFPB. The DC Circuit, um, if I remember correctly, ended up sort of deciding that case more on regulatory grounds uh, than on constitutional grounds. Now, the, the Supreme Court in this case has granted cert on the, the, the constitutional question. It's hard for me to see a, a, a non-constitutional off-ramp here, but then I guess the, the, the collateral question then is how far would the decision cut? And that's going to be really hard fought in this litigation. Some people are going to argue that the CFPB's funding structure, if it's unconstitutional, negates huge swaths of what the agency has done in the past. Others are going to argue that uh, it's a much narrower issue and it'll have impacts going forward, but not going backward. Uh, my guess is that the Roberts Court, if they do declare the funding structure unconstitutional, will have a fairly narrow remedy here. Uh, they're not going to sort of sweepingly um, negate years of the agency's work, um, but it will raise questions about um, what the CFPB, CFPB can do going forward without new congressional appropriations. And am I correct to, um, in my impression, that even where the Supreme Court has given us these big constitutional rulings on separation of powers as it deals with agencies, that the remedy has been pretty narrow. Um, they haven't been really willing to take, you know, really broad remedial measures. Yes, definitely. And and again, that's to the sometimes to the consternation of folks who would like to see the court go further. I tend to see them as flip sides of of one coin. My sense of the Roberts Court is that in part it is willing to be somewhat bold on the constitutional issue um, because the remedy has been narrower. And if somehow the court were forced to take a very sweeping uh, remedy, it might become more modest on the constitutional issue, but it's hard to say. Hmm. Let me, Adam, try to do a little bit of tea leaf reading to the extent it's possible, because there were uh, a couple, couple aspects of what the court did in granting this case that I think are somewhat interesting. One is that the, the trade group that was challenging this payday lending rule 
also asked the Supreme Court to to hear a petition and uh, a cross petition, and the court said no. They, they were basically issues where the where the, uh, the the trade group was saying we could win on these issues as well, get what we want. Do you glean anything from that decision? It struck me as a bit unusual for the court to deny cert at that point rather than just holding that petition. Well, Greg, you watch the court a lot closer and a lot more than I do, so maybe I should ask you the question. But I'd say the the case's procedural posture was complicated by the fact that the government had asked to expedite the case. Uh, They wanted it heard in the spring. Um, the, the the respondents to that petition, the the trade group, since they had won below, they weren't so much in a hurry to hear the case decided right away. Um, and, and indeed, it seems the court is, as far as I could tell, the court is not expediting the case yet. The most likely would be that it's heard in the fall. I always kind of wonder if the litigants might make that kind of argument about all these other issues uh, in order to maybe complicate the case a bit and deter the court from racing into it right away. Um, but I, I I don't know. I'm I'm out of practice now for a few years, so I've sort of lost those uh, those instincts. But that I I just see the case as being complicated in a few directions, and it's hard to glean too much from any one data point. And does the decision not to fast track um, now that that does have some effect? The Biden administration made a a significant deal out of look. The, the agency is really uh, kind of in a state of limbo here, and we don't know the state of all these rules that it's issued and these enforcement actions that it's, it, it is taking. Does that tell you anything about how the court might be thinking about these issues? Well, the, when the government made that argument, the response from the other side was that uh, the agency, sure, was facing a lot of new arguments and other proceedings about its constitutionality, but its day-to-day operations hadn't really been affected. It's not turning off the lights and going home anytime soon. And I guess that's probably what moved the court. I have to say, as a, as a, as a former lawyer and uh, somebody who studies the agencies, I'm always amused by when agencies argue that the court's proceedings create a lot of uncertainty for the agency, because frankly, I think a lot of private industry feels that way about the CFPB itself whenever it starts a new legal proceeding. One of the sort of joyful ironies of administrative law is that it's one of the it's the area where the regulators are the ones being regulated. So you often see the agency making to the courts the kind of arguments or complaints that private parties make to the agencies themselves. Well, so on those complaints that the Biden administration has, I'm wondering what will the eventual effects be if the justices do side with the Fifth Circuit and leave that ruling standing? Is the Biden administration correct that it could call into question all of its actions or does it really, again, depend on sort of that remedy aspect that the justices look at? It depends on the remedy. I, I don't expect it to call into question the, you know, the vast bulk of old proceedings. Pending proceedings, yes. Future proceedings, definitely. And I think a lot's going to hinge on, on Congress's willingness to fund the agency. I think some are worried that the CFPB would be defunded. I don't know. Congress funds all kinds of agencies uh, that many members of Congress don't like. The CFPB, of course, has always been a little radioactive uh, among conservatives, particularly because of its origins as a as a uniquely independent agency. But in many ways, these last few cases, the sale of law case in this case, are more about normalizing the regulation of consumer financial protection uh, rather than uh, nuking it. 
All right. Well, thank you so much um, for going in all directions with us um, on this case. And the court did say that the case will be heard next term. So I'm sure we'll hear more from us um, on this podcast. But thanks for joining us today, Adam. Well, thank you. Well, that'll be a big one for us to watch next term. I'm, I don't know about you, Greg, but I'm sort of glad that they didn't agree to hear it this term because, like, we got enough going on, right? We got affirmative action, voting rights, student loans, internet. I'm good. I'm good on this term. Yeah, I think those all on a single day in late June will be enough. <laughs> well, we'll be back next week to take a look at the next argument sitting. And until then, you can follow along at all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. Newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. <laughs>